a man called uh, Creflo um, to come and uh, preach. Uh, Creflo is a pastor in Atlanta and in New York City. He's the head of something called Creflo Dollar Ministries. And uh, over the last few weeks, I've been listening to some of his preaching and reading up on the so-called prosperity gospel. And if you want the essence of this teaching, uh, you can see it in a tweet that was posted and later deleted, if we could put that up. Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. So there it is in all its boldness. The atoning work of Jesus Christ, according to Creflo Dollar, is so that we can all get rich. That's what the cross work of Christ is about. Hashtag prosperity in Christ. Hashtag wealthy living. Hashtag abundant life. Uh, the sermons that I recently podcasted that I listened to in the last few weeks essentially teach this, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have all been given authority by God to speak words of blessing over uh, our lives so that if we have enough faith, we can become materially prosperous and we can cure ourselves of life-threatening diseases. It's quite extraordinary. He teaches that God is powerless to act without us that we should stop talking to God about our problems, about our financial health problems, stop talking to God about them, and use our authority to start speaking to our problems, that our words will either empower God to bless us or empower Satan to curse us. And essentially, all this prosperity teaching then focuses really down on us. It's down to you. If, you are, if you're unhealthy and poor, uh, well, that's, that's your fault. Uh, you have the power to maximize your potential, to have a life of fullness, a uh, life of well-being, to break out of the desperation of your dashed hopes. But of course, you really need to listen to Dr. Creflo's teaching ministry so that you can learn the things which, as he says, are not normally taught in Christian churches in order to gain that special insight that will enable us to prosper. And uh, for a love gift of $45 or more, I love that at the end, or more, you can receive three life-changing messages and some books that mean we don't have to die from our diseases that we might currently have, and we'll be able to be freed from our financial debts. Now, last year, Dr. Creflo Dollar received a lot of publicity for asking his ministry supporters to send in their money so he could buy a $65 million Gulfstream jet, which befits a man who drives around at least one of his two Rolls Royces. Now, I'm very aware of how the increasing number of Christian TV channels are, are on our, uh, you know, you can get, if you're on Freesat, if you're on uh, Freeview, and you get to the back end of the list, you can find all these Christian channels, and you can hear from these uh, different prosperity preachers. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to hear this teaching from this pulpit, but I'm anxious that you might tune into this stuff and start listening to it, because this, is, this teaching that Creflo teaches is also taught by people like Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Fred Price, Robert Tillman, and, and it's out there. And so because of this invitation by Destiny to bring uh, this man to Scotland, I feel I need to address it in some way. God has given the elders 
of this church the responsibility to be shepherds over this congregation. And we need to be discerning. We need to be biblical. And we need to be able to see false teaching and reject it. Reject what is harmful to our souls. And so that's why I want to take the opportunity this Sunday to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And you'll find that on page 1194 in the church Bibles. Page 1194. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading from the the end of verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, please, in a world where there is so much that is untrue and so much that is spiritually harmful and toxic, even amongst those who proclaim to be preachers of the gospel, would you give us discernment? Help us, Lord, to examine your word and please examine our hearts that we may be those who can pursue godliness with contentment. We thank you for the glorious gospel. Lord, we pray that we may drink of the true gospel and not be poisoned by its false um, copies. In Christ's name, amen. At the time that Paul uh, is writing this, he's, he's writing it to Timothy He's urged Timothy to stick around in the church in Ephesus. And at that time, Paul is saying to Timothy, there's essentially two types of teachers. And that is still true today. There's basically two types of 
preachers. There are faithful teachers and there are false teachers. It was true in the first century, it is true today. And the Apostle Paul is calling upon Timothy to be a faithful teacher at the end of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. See, Timothy's job in, in Ephesus was to faithfully pass on to the church the gospel of Jesus Christ that, he had, that had been revealed to the apostles, that had been revealed to the apostle Paul. Take a look back at chapter 1 and verse 15. This is one of the great verses, perhaps my favorite verse in some ways. It's so encouraging. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, says the Apostle Paul. And he um, has said earlier in this letter that the uh, false teachers misuse the Old Testament. Uh, they use the old, misuse the Old Testament law, which is actually there to bring conviction of sin. It's actually there to warn us of God's wrath and condemnation for those who turn their backs on God and reject His law. And it is there to point us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the greatest problem that we face in, in the world is this. How can I be right before a holy God? And God in His kindness has revealed His, His word to us so we know His law and His character. And it clearly reveals that we are people who are bent twisted. We turn away from his righteousness that in our hearts that we are sinners who sin and we deserve his judgment. But here's the great and glorious news. This terrible problem that we are sinners who deserve the eternal wrath and judgment of God. God in his love and his kindness sent Christ Jesus into the world to save sinners from his wrath and judgment. That is the apostolic gospel. And the, uh, the great problem of the fact that we deserve the wrath of God is answered by the glorious gospel of Christ, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners, but you know, if you know your own heart, you might have a sneaking suspicion that you're the worst of sinners. That's the good news. And Timothy is to urge and teach these things. And uh, included in that, gospel truth of, of the sin-bearing death of Christ, that we would be saved from God's eternal condemnation, is also a way of life, a, a way that, uh, of living that is a link to the gospel. All the way through the letter, Paul calls it godliness. There is a manner of life that fits the gospel. And he's urging Timothy to also teach uh, not only the gospel itself, but the importance of a godly life and a godly church that reflects that gospel. And that's what he's to teach and urge. Now, um, if you're involved in teaching the Bible in any way, um, at Sunday school or youth group or preaching or whatever you do, I think it's worth noting that it, it, you have to do more than instruct. He says, teach and urge. Urge these things. Um, we actually all need someone to kind of rouse us, to stir us up, 
to exhort us. We can get very comfortable in our lives. We can get stuck in our, in our ruts. We can get stuck in our, our way of thinking and in our practice. We can get stuck in, in being quite convinced that what we think is absolutely right, even if it might in fact be worldly and foolish. And so Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. False teaching had come into the church in Ephesus. There were false teachers teaching in that church. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, uh, I've urged you to stick around in Ephesus to tell these false teachers to stop it. And he names names as well. Now, the reason that we desperately need these faithful teachers is because there's false teachers. Um, and so Paul... Let's turn back to chapter 1 so I can show you this. Um, verse 3, As I urge you, when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Look at verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Why is it necessary to rebuke false teachers, to name false teachers, to be clear on this, is it motivated out of a sense of sort of rivalry, boasting? No, it is out of love. Here's two glasses of water. One, one is pure water. One has poison in it. Now, if I were to say to you, well, have a, have a glass of water. Pick one. Is that loving? Is it loving when you know one is filled of poison, not to warn of the poison? It's not loving, is it? It is a loving thing to say, don't drink that one. It's got poison in it. It'll harm you. It'll, it'll damage you. And, that, and even though it's very uncomfortable, really, to point out where there is false teaching, it is absolutely necessary to do so because to swallow false teaching is to swallow what is spiritually harmful to your soul and may have eternal consequences if we drift away from the gospel. We can shipwreck our faith. We can head off course. And so what we believe really matters. And at the end of uh, 1 Timothy, Paul points out to uh, Timothy three tests uh, that enable us to assess a false teacher. So if turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Three tests, and there's a test of truth, there's the test of unity, and the test of motivation. So the first is the test of truth, verse 3. The false teacher deviates from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. False teachers deviate from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice with me that there is a clear, recognized message that's called the good news of Jesus Christ. You can describe it. It's a known thing. It's something that you can pass on. Throughout this letter, if you take time to read it today, you'll see that Paul describes it in different ways. Uh, he talks um, about sound instruction. He talks about the faith, the teaching the good deposit. 
in the New Testament, there is this language of, of, of a receiving of the tradition of the, you know, the, the, the gospel itself. It's being passed on a form of words, a, a truth that's defined that uh, Paul received at 1 Corinthians 15. And then he passed on to them as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised. We can define, we can say what the gospel is and therefore we can say what the gospel is not. And the... The ultimate test, I guess, of the false teacher is that they deviate from this sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're they're moving away from it. The subtlety of false teaching is that it uses words from the Bible. It, It talks about grace, faith, gospel. It talks about Jesus. But if you listen long enough, you realize that these words mean something quite different to how they're used in the Bible. Grant Retief is a minister in Durban, South Africa, and South Africa is plagued with this prosperity gospel. And he wrote an article for Nine Marks where he says this of the prosperity preachers. In such churches, there is a talk of sin, grace, and faith, but these words are no longer used according to their biblical categories and context. Instead, their meanings are vaguely assumed or are informed not by theology but psychology. For example, sin might be described as the failure to achieve your goals, not as rebellion against an almighty God. And once you've redefined sin, it's a short step to redefine salvation. Salvation is no longer the rescue from God's wrath by the wrath-absorbing, vicarious death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, it is the rescue from the temporal effects of sin. Jesus will rescue from poverty, depression, mediocrity, and so on. In short, these churches offer motivational talks, not biblical sermons, proof texts, not biblical theology, applications of the gospel, not the gospel, moral improvement, not conversion, calls to social justice and giving, not evangelism, Status in the community, not accountability, affording membership. Flattery, not discipline. Lessons in getting busy, not discipleship. Professionalism, not leadership. And notice from verse 3, false teachers deviate both from being preaching the orthodox gospel, but also from the teaching about godliness that's passed on. You'll find that there's less talk about sin, which is seen as too negative. There's a greater tolerance for immoral behavior, more acceptance of their leaders uh, who seem to be able to leave their wives, trade up for a younger, better-looking one, and keep running the ministry. Financial corruption, lack of accountability, as special leaders are exempted from normal standards of behavior. False teaching neither properly teaches about Jesus Christ, nor does it promote the godly life that Paul teaches about in this letter. So that's test number one. Test number two, the test of unity. In verse four, they split the church. Uh, he is conceited. If, he's, if they're teaching something different, they are conceited and understand nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. False teachers come into churches and create splits. 
See, in contrast to the sound, healthy words of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's almost a pathological desire to create controversy, to show their spiritual power and authority, to um, overturn historic orthodox faith and teaching by their special revelations. And Paul calls it out. They're conceited. I mean, you will, you'll, you'll notice about false teachers that there's a lot of talk about themselves. The pastor or preacher goes on an ego trip of self-adulation. Their faces adorn the church materials. They become the star of the show. Their literature is, is full of their name, their ministry. You'll hear a lot about their uniqueness and how powerful their teachings are that they're bringing. So keep listening, keep reading, keep tuning in, keep, keep sending in the money. They say they're bringing you the true Bible teaching. They may even stand up at the beginning, hold it up in the air and say, I believe the Bible. But if you listen, the Bible is really used. And most often it's quoted out of context and it's wrongly applied. And instead of talking about Christ and Him crucified, they will talk about themselves, about their teaching, their revelations, their successful methodology, and far from promoting godliness, their ministry produces, Paul says, envy, resenting other people's gifts, dissension, aggravation, and competition amongst Christians, slander, abusing others, evil suspicions, and constant frictions. This is the sort of stuff that splits churches. Now, one of the great blessings of being in Edinburgh at this time in history is that there's fantastic gospel unity amongst so many of the churches. The Easter Scotland Gospel Partnership has been a real joy that even though we come from uh, different uh, traditions and that we might disagree on secondary matters, because we hold to the gospel at the center, there's a massive unity and love and respect between the pastors, the elders, and the churches. It was a joy, wasn't it, if you got the chance to go to the Easter Scotland Gospel Partnership joint service at Barclay Viewforth and see the place full. Oh, folk, worshipping God, uh, delighting in the gospel, hearing the word preached soundly by Kevin DeYoung on that particular evening. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is central, this promotes unity, love, partnership, humility. But when false teaching is brought in, you can see that it threatens all of that. Instead, there's pride and dissension, suspicion and splintering. So that's the second test, unity. The third test is of of motivation. Verse 5, they love money. This is how you see a false teacher. They deviate from the gospel, they split churches, and they love money. Verse 5, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So false teachers look like they care about godliness, but it's only because it's a means to an end to get more money. They love money. They'll make lots of impassioned appeals for our money so that the glorious ministry will continue. But it's incredible to me that people don't notice who are the ones who are benefiting the most. Back in the 1940s, L. Ron Hubbard said this, if you want to make real money, you've got to start a religion. And he proved that by starting the Church of Scientology. And if that's too hard to start a whole brand new religion, well, just look like you're in the Christian mainstream. If you're going to, make, going to make money, you need to find gullible people who seem, you know, seem to be ripe for the fleecing. 
And as I say, flick on the TV show, you'll find endless appeals from Christian ministries that urge you to send in your seed money. This is the phrase, isn't it? Send in your seed money. And do you know what? The more you give, the more you're going to receive. Give $10, you're going to get $100. Give $1,000, you're going to get 10 times that. Send in your seed money. And there are absolutely horrific examples, if you just go on YouTube, of, of, of so-called evangelists staring at the camera and saying, you know, there's people here with huge credit card debts, and if you just ring us up and make a donation from your credit card, uh, that'll be the way you're going to get out of debt. That's evil. That's evil. Satanic. It's appalling. And I'm stunned at the gullibility of people who finance these so-called ministries and label these men to fly around in their luxury uh, private jets, staying in luxury suites, and going to supposed healing crusades where nobody really gets healed in any way that doctors can measure. It is grotesque. And as John Stott uh, writes in his commentary, these verses really give us three important questions to evaluate all teaching. Is it compatible with the apostolic faith that is found in the New Testament? Does it tend to unite or divide the church? And thirdly, does it promote godliness with contentment or covetousness? Now, if you find yourself watching Christian TV, I want to say to you, use these tests to evaluate it. Um, and work out, is this a faithful teacher or a false teacher? When you're told by friends that you can claim your prosperity, open your Bibles, have a look. Have a look at the life of Jesus in the gospel. He had no home to lay his head. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He didn't have his own white stallion charger to go in. He had to borrow a donkey. He never made anybody materially better off in his earthly ministry. But he did talk about forgiving people's sins, didn't he? Read First Peter, one of the inner three of the disciples. What does he have to say about the Christian life? Well, read the, read the letter of First Peter. What's the pattern of expectation? Who would follow the pattern of Christ in his suffering now with glory to come. The prosperity gospel completely inverts that. It's kind of glory now and even more glory to come. But the New Testament says, suffering now, glory to come. Test these claims against Scripture. But why is this prosperity gospel so popular? Because it fits in with our materialistic desires, doesn't it? It tells us exactly what our itching ears want to hear. And at the end of the day, it's just too easy to point at greedy TV evangelists. What is it that you and I think we need most? Uh, when I was living in America, uh, I went on the streets with a video camera, and uh, we filmed people. We asked them, what do you need most? And do you know what the answer was most consistently? Well, you might be able to guess. The most common answer was this, one million dollars. It was amazing to me. That was the number, one million dollars. It doesn't matter whether they look rich or poor, 
young or old, an extra million would basically sort it out. Um, and when you start daydreaming, like a million dollars, even when you turn that into pounds, that's quite a bit of money. 685,000. What could you do with 685,000? Well, you could pay off any debts you have. You could get financial freedom, no more worries. You could pay off your mortgage. You could maybe buy a bigger house. You could have a nicer car, go on nice holidays. You could go to nice restaurants. You could stop working. You could leave that job that drives you crazy. You could, uh, well, you wouldn't have to depend on other people. You could be your own boss. You'd be in charge. Actually, a million dollars, whoever you are, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, at some time, you've maybe thought, well, a million dollars would be quite handy, wouldn't it? Have you not thought that? And that's the seductive lie of money, isn't it? That is the seductive lie of money. It is, it is a lie that is so sweet and juicy that millions swallow it, and we're hooked into the passions uh, that, that worship money. That's what Jesus said. He warns us, nobody can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We live in a wealthy city. I keep noticing Maseratis. What a nice car. All around us are paraded all the trinkets. They're tempting us to think, oh, if I could have that, that, then I would be really happy. That would really make me feel special. That's what I deserve. This is what's going to really fulfill me if I had that. And Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. It's crucial that we understand what he finishes off with in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Two things we need to understand as I close. Firstly, godliness is gain. Secondly, greed is loss. Verse 6 to 8, godliness is gain. False teachers, they think godliness is a means to gain. Financial gain, they mean. But Paul says, actually, do you know what? Godliness with contentment is great gain. What is contentment? Well, it's about being satisfied with what you've got and not grasping for what you haven't got. And how can you be content? Well, look, look at verse 7. Remember this. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. You were born naked. You're going out in a box naked because you can't take any of it with you. And so... Job says in, in chapter 1, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can't take anything with you. How crazy to pursue money and possessions that will have no value or use in the life to come. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world, Jesus says, and yet forfeit his soul? The only thing that we can really gain in this life that we can take on to the next is our relationship with Jesus Christ. To have Christ is to have all that we really need. To know that your sins are forgiven, to know that you are loved by God, to know that you're in a right, right relationship with Him as, as Father, you're in His family, to be given eternal life. An eternity of glory in the new heavens and the new earth in a loving community where there's no sin, sorrow, or shame. 
when we come to understand the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ, then we will realize that we, will, that we have all that we need in Christ. And then we can learn the secret of contentment, which is when I know I've got Christ, and whether I have an abundance or little, I have all that I need. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, and the word clothing is covering, so I think that maybe means shelter as well. If we have food, clothing, somewhere to live, we will be content with that. Second thing we need to see is that greed is loss. Verse 9 to 10. If we think that godliness is a means to material gain, then we're not loving Jesus. What are we loving? We're loving money. That's our God. And that is very serious territory. Verse 9, when our, when our central desire is not for knowing Jesus Christ, but instead wanting to be rich, then the devil can find many ways to lure us off the path of righteousness. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. If we love money, it's amazing what people are willing to do. To be economical with the truth, to cut corners, to do insider trading, to fix the interbank lending rate, to sell dodgy mortgages, to siphon off money and sell the business so we don't have the pension liabilities, to falsify pre-tax profits, to do creative accountancy, it's amazing what people will do. People will murder people for money. Presumably, those email scams that uh, I've had in the past from Nigeria, where somebody has amazingly decided that they want to unload on me millions and millions of pounds, and uh, all I have to do is send in about you know five to ten thousand to sort of free up the paperwork, and I can have millions. Presumably, those emails keep going out because some sucker reads it and goes, Oh, yeah, I've been selected. And they write the checks. It must be, mustn't it? Notice it is not money that's the problem. It's the love of money. Money is very useful. We all need it. It's part of God's creation. But it's the love of money. It's thinking that money's going to answer my problems. Money's my God. Money's what I'm for. That is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is that sort of love that causes people, it says here, to wander away from the faith. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. People have walked away from eternal life. Have walked away from a right relationship with God. Walked away from their only hope, which is salvation in Christ, because of the promise of a few more bucks, a few more pounds. And it seems to me that the prosperity gospel seems to appeal to this basic greed. And it is, to me, utterly toxic that we're encouraging people to love something 
and go for something that actually causes people to wander from the faith, to wander from Christ and pierce themselves with many griefs. It is very cruel. Look at the command to Timothy in verse 11. Timothy is the preacher, the man of God, is to flee from all this. Not to embrace it, not to teach it. Not to teach that the Christian faith is a way to get rich and financially prosper. He is to flee the desire to be rich that comes from discontentment. And so my Christian friends, I say to you what I've said in private to pastors at Destiny Church. Do not be deceived by this prosperity gospel. It is no gospel at all. Let's pray.